0: Hi, welcome everyone who's just tuned in. Thank you for joining this webinar titled Towards Safe System Infrastructure. My name is Elise, and I'll be moderating this session. I'm here to provide any technical support. If you are experiencing any issues, please use the chat box in your webinar toolbar to contact me. This webinar is proudly brought to you by Osroads. Austroads supports its member organisations, those listed here to deliver an improved road transport network. Osroads members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of roads valued at more than $200 billion. Here at Osroads we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This Osroads project falls under the safety program. And just some housekeeping items before we kick off. Our two presenters today will speak for 60 minutes and then we have 15 minutes at the end for a Q&A. We are recording today's session and we'll contact you once the video is ready to view on our website. If you'd like a copy of the presentation slides that we're using, you can download them in the handout section. The GoToWebinar system that we're using today has a questions function where you could ask our presenters any questions. Simply type your questions into the questions box that you could see into your sidebar at any time throughout the webinar. Please indicate the slide number your question relates to and we'll collate the questions to answer them in the Q&A at the end. This webinar will provide an overview of the new Osteridge Compendium of Knowledge on Safe System Treatments and real-world experience in the practical application of solutions that can mitigate crash severity. You can download the compendium from the handout section in your sidebar or through the website. So today we're privileged to have two industry-leading experts joining us remotely, I'd like to welcome back our first presenter who presented a webinar with us a few months ago. His name is Dr. Blair Turner and he's a national technical leader at the and Road Research Board. Blair has over 20 years experience in road safety and has produced numerous national and international guidelines on the topic. Hi Blair, thanks for joining us again, welcome back.
1: Thank you and good afternoon to the listeners.
0: Our second presenter is Associate Professor Jeremy Woolley and he's a director of the Centre for Automotive Safety Research at the University of Adelaide. He has been associated with the development and review of national and state road safety strategies and is well known for his work in promoting safe system thinking. Hello Jeremy, it's good to have you with us today.
2: Hello Elise, thank you and hello to all the listeners.
0: So it's my pleasure to hand this session over to Blair who'll talk you through the agenda for the webinar.
1: Great, Uh, thanks Liz. And uh, we do have a fairly packed programme. We'll basically uh, do a double act here and uh, talk you through primarily this new uh, compendium from Austroads. We'll give you a very brief recap on the safe system approach. Uh, But the core of the presentation uh, really is around this compendium and its contents, particularly around um, roads and roadsides intersections, Uh, I'll jump back in and do some work on on speeds, and then vulnerable road users. Uh, And then at the end, uh, a small session around some of the safe system tools that have been developed. Uh, And this really is making the safe system approach real for uh, for practitioners, whether in in road agencies or working in consultancy. So just in terms of uh, background uh, content, um, this presentation today is based on two projects from AustRoads. Uh, Firstly, is this uh, compendium of current knowledge around safe systems, and it focuses on infrastructure. Uh, In parallel to that work though, we uh, ran uh, a series of workshops right around Australia and New Zealand. Uh, And indeed, there were 15 two-day workshops uh, run back in 2016. Uh, And then more recently this year, we've run a further three one-day workshops. Um, And we're bringing both of the contents from these projects together because they they do go hand-in-hand. The workshop material certainly helped inform the content in the, uh, the compendium. Uh, just briefly, the projects, um, the main uh, project, the compendium, was managed uh, through Austroads by Colin Brody, based out of New Zealand uh, and the workshops uh, by Natalie Lockwood and uh, David Bobman. Um, in terms of the compendium, uh, my colleague Je- uh, Jeremy was leading that work and assisted by uh, his team in, in Adelaide as well as uh, our team here in Melbourne. Uh, And in the workshops, we actually used uh, similar uh, experts for presenting, uh, and that was facilitated by um, Ken Bear at Safe System Solutions. Uh, Important to point out that there's been quite a wide uh, representation on uh, the uh, steering groups and committees for this work, uh, bringing uh, knowledge from uh, right around Australia and New Zealand, so a uh, a stakeholder group, uh, the Ostroads Safety Task Force, and indeed Design Task Force, and finally the Ostroads Board with with their sign-off. Uh, and um, the project steering group spread right around Australia uh, and New Zealand and other representatives there on your your screen. I'll jump straight into the the background and scene setting around the SAFE system in in, in two slides. Uh, So obviously a very, very brief overview. And and really today is about um, giving you that overview and trying to really encourage you to go and and seek this information out from this this new compendium. So the SAFE system in in two slides in perhaps five minutes. Um, Many of you will have seen these sorts of uh, images, this uh, big zero, which is what we're trying to aim towards, and that's uh, aiming towards zero deaths and serious injuries on our road as a vision. It is a vision, it's a long-term prospect, uh, 20, 30, perhaps even 40 years into the future, Um, but that's the direction that we're set. It's certainly been uh, signed up to by all road agencies in Australia and New Zealand, and globally Uh, the safe system approach is the leading uh, recognized approach internationally so various international agencies have adopted this Uh, very quickly basic principles are that people make mistakes Um, drivers will continue to make mistakes but they shouldn't be penalized with death or serious injury for those mistakes Uh, there's an understanding around the the tolerances of the human body when a crash does occur Uh, and as we'll see uh, a bit later there's quite good knowledge in there around the sorts of impact speeds above which we don't really stand a great chance of surviving or avoiding serious injury. Um, so that really forms the core of this, um, this new approach. Really importantly is this point around shared responsibility and we often see in the media and even in our workplaces we hear the conversations that um, uh, that person made a mistake, that person was speeding, that person was fatigued. There's certainly a, um, a requirement for, for drivers to be alert and compliant but the change really is the recognition that there's things we can do uh, in our own roles as road managers, as consultants, as others. We can provide an environment that when mistakes do occur it doesn't result in that uh, death or serious injury so things like forgiving roadside environments. Uh, The last point there is the solutions can be found across all the pillars. Uh, Typically in Australia we talk about safe roads, safe speeds, safe road users and safe vehicles. Uh, Internationally, we also include a fifth pillar, which is really around post-crash care and making sure we work alongside um, experts in emergency response. Um, But the key point here is that it's all of these pillars working together. We can only get so far in any one pillar. And I think the main lesson uh, on this point is, uh, all of us in our roles need to work more with our partner stakeholders. And I'll come back to that point later as well. Some other key elements are that we need a far more proactive approach. Uh, our historical approach in road safety has been to respond to crashes that have occurred. So, you know, yesterday there was a fatal crash, uh, perhaps and we, we rush out and try and address that location. Uh, and we, ch- we chase our tails if we do that. Um, certainly the knowledge around crash history is very important, but we're moving now to a more proactive footing uh, for addressing uh, the likely locations for crashes in the future. The focus has moved from uh, all crashes um, to a real concentration on eliminating deaths and serious injuries. So although we're interested in any crash, whether it's uh, serious or minor or non-injury, the focus really is on the high-end severe crashes and that actually has quite a profound uh, impact. If you have two lists of crash locations at intersections, one based on all crashes, it'll be quite different to a list that's based just on the fatal and serious ones. So it changes our analysis and uh, our prioritization to quite a large extent. Uh, and finally, as I've said, uh, this is a vision, it's a long-term uh, direction. Uh, and what it does do though, is it directs uh, interim strategies, uh, but it means it does, it does change what we do, and um, it's probably more uh, focusing on systemic approaches and less on these sort of uh, reactive um, spot location rep- approaches, as an example. This uh, next slide really, uh, to me, tells two main stories. Uh, This is the cultural shift and trying to define where we are on this journey to safe system. And I think a really good way to to explain what's different about the safe system is is through this slide. Uh, It shows on the left-hand side there um, our historic approaches uh, and on the right-hand side where we need to be uh, from a safe system perspective. So on the top one there, blaming road users, are you and your organisation or um, are you and your colleagues still blaming drivers and, you know, when a crash occurs, you put it down to the fact that uh, the driver was fatigued or uh, for whatever reason or are you now starting to to try and identify ways which um, throughout the whole system we can improve the the outcomes of those crashes when they do occur and it's really a continuum it's really a cultural shift between one to the other Um, secondly are you focusing on all crashes or has your focus switched to elimination of uh, death and serious injury are you reacting to crashes and, and effectively chasing your tail or are you being far more proactive about Uh, the identification of risk locations and then the last one there is individual pillars and this is one we're still working through I think I think a lot of us still suffer from this that we tend to look within our own areas of operation Uh, so for me that's uh, safe road infrastructure we really need to be working more with our stakeholder colleagues and uh, as an example um, fatigue crashes uh, we can work with our colleagues to put in place in some cases um, uh, fatigue measures um, uh, rest areas and the like we can work with our uh, enforcement colleagues to put in place provision and locations for them to do their enforcement for police for instance uh, and, and similar so it's really about finding opportunities to work across pillars so on each of those elements I really urge you to think about where you are on that continuum on that cultural shift uh, are you blaming road users or are you more looking at the shared responsibility element so that's uh, a quick summary I'll, I'll pass over to Jeremy now to talk about the compendium
2: Thank you Blair. Um, so I'll just uh, give a, a basic outline of the compendium uh, and then we'll uh, get into the, the details of the, the content. Uh, so fundamentally uh, the compendium provides a reference document for the, the latest evidence and commentary on uh, safe systems thinking. Uh, so it's a sort of a, a one-two place to go to for, for um, evidence-based uh, treatments and, and approaches uh, to help you pursue the safe systems in your day-to-day activities. It's uh, aimed at a broad range of people but uh, we feel it will be most relevant to those associated with planning, design, management and maintenance of the road network but of course it does provide some very good background information and overviews for those working in other areas of safety as well. Um, But the the point of the compendium is to clarify practical steps to take things forward in your day-to-day activities. It should be acknowledged however that knowledge and practice in the area is evolving rapidly and even during the course of writing the compendium uh, there was much evidence emerging around uh, practical steps to take things forward. So you need to be cognizant that uh, it is a rapidly evolving area. Um, One thing that is quite evident though is that we must do things differently to how we've done them in the past and in that context innovation is essential. Um, We must look to new ways of doing things and, as Blair was saying, interactions with the other pillars, having a true systems response if we're to ever deal with the the crash residual that that remains. The other thing that is often misunderstood about Safe System is is the fact that it's a focus on harm minimisation. So you need to make sure you at least consider the opportunity to achieve this in your decision processes. Um, and an important thing there is you also consider your ability to influence the severity of crash outcomes when crashes do occur, which is uh, what we've been missing for a long time now. And again touch on Blair's point, infrastructure alone cannot deliver the desired outcomes. And, uh, but we do need to acknowledge at present the pillars are quite isolated and there is no strong alignment between designing to the strengths of vehicle design, designing to the uh, limitations of human performance and certainly uh, within the, the understanding of role of speed and energy in injury outcomes. So there's much room for improvement there and much room still for innovation. So in terms of what the book covers, uh, it's got an introductory section which sets uh, the context around mm-hmm. the things I've just been mentioning. Also it's got a, a nice section on the safe system which uh, for those new to it, or if you wish to uh, explain it to your superiors, uh, can uh, be, of, uh, be quite useful in that regard. Uh, And then it gets into the influence of the road environment on road user performance. Uh, Then it talks about the role of speed in harm minimisation, then goes into detail around intersections, lane departures uh, and then uh, focus on specific road user groups, vulnerable road users and heavy vehicles. Um, A very brief uh, commentary on uh, emerging technologies and autonomous vehicles. Um, and then concluding with the tools and prioritisation approaches that exist. And in the back there is a list of resources for you to uh, look at. So the key messages that uh, occur throughout the theme of the compendium and and if if there was a take-home message for you all listening today, it would be that firstly we need to work through a treatment hierarchy and this hierarchy is Uh, based predominantly on the ability of treatments to eliminate the harm that's being caused. Um, So you need to make sure you work down this hierarchy and make sure you give every opportunity to those treatments that can reduce the harm uh, to be implemented if possible. You also need to consider system redundancy and historically in in traffic uh, engineering we've not done that very well. Uh, For example, we just put up a single stop sign and placed total reliance on that stop sign. Uh, now we need to think across the system about where we have additional redundancy and play out these watch-if scenarios. Watch if the driver doesn't see the stop sign or is distracted or there's, uh, is obscured by a tree. We need to start giving that more serious thought. And finally we need to look for differing opportunities to mitigate the risk and that can be done at the level of exposure. Why do we even allow this right-hand turn uh, to exist in the system? Um, why is there a need for this uh, journey to be made at all? Uh, Through to likelihood, which is where we've traditionally focused very heavily on our uh, countermeasures. Putting up a stop sign, putting in a red turn arrow, things like that, they influence the likelihood of a crash occurring. And finally, the the main missing dimension is severity. Um, We need to assume that if a crash does occur, what role can we play as practitioners in mitigating the severity of outcomes in that crash? Um, I've put this slide up front because I know there's often many questions and and queries about the the future and autonomous vehicles and increasing autonomy. Um, What I'll say to that is we need appropriate expectations. Uh, To a certain extent the media has hijacked the agenda here and we're talking about a utopia where we've got complete automation across all parts of the system. Um, I don't think it's quite going to play out like that. We might have automation in components of the system. Um, But if you look at most of the the leading studies to date, we're still dealing with around a 30 to 85% uh, crash residual for varying driver assist technologies. So there still will be a need to deal with crashes that are happening. And again, we need to consider the redundancy that we're providing across the pillars and within the system. Um, And also we need to acknowledge that vehicles need to be able to interpret the roads and certainly interact with them. And the, uh, the photographs I've got there is from a news story about a fatal Tesla crash in America um, where in fact the, the vehicle was on autopilot and unfortunately impacted with a crash cushion that had already been impacted uh, previously um, and that led to fatal outcomes. So the interactions with roads will definitely still be there and there will be a need to pay attention to this and fine tune how we still manage and, and design and build and plan roads. I'll now uh, focus on uh, roads and roadsides um, and certainly this is a challenging area that's been with us for many, many decades and we've we failed to really uh, grapple with the, the residual crashes uh, by these the road departure crash types of which head-on collision uh, is one of those. Um, so if we look at the crash and weatherness and the capability of vehicles to protect us, um, I think as practitioners you do know intuitively that the roller of speed is essential um, and with the uh, relationship uh, with the, the, the squared nature of speed, uh, we can see that a crash at 60 kilometres an hour um, is quite different to that at 100 kilometres an hour and if you look at the definition in the vehicle, um, what's really well not well appreciated by the community is the difference uh, in impact energy between those two collisions is 3.4 times uh, the, uh, the impact energy, so so uh, very, uh, it really does highlight the, the key role of speed in, in uh, crash outcomes and the fact that we are still very limited in our ability to protect vehicle occupants at those sort of speeds. If we extend this to something that's very real for road departures, uh, certainly on rural roads, it's side impact with uh, roadside hazards. On the left there you can see a uh, crash test in controlled conditions um, and that's actually conducted at 29 kilometres an hour um, and you can see the defamation there on that vehicle and I'm sure none of you listening would be comfortable to be uh, replacing that dummy in that crash test. The reality though on our rural roads is we have speeds 100, 110 um, or indeed higher um, and uh, crashes are catastrophic. The ability to survive these crashes and should you get a side impact where the pole aligns with your torso and body, um, the chances of survival are very slim. Um, So that's the reality of what we're dealing with out there and we certainly do need to acknowledge that. The final point as I've been uh, emphasising is that of redundancy and here we have a a classic crash configuration here. Uh, A vehicle has gone off onto the unsealed shoulder, Um, the drivers reacted, Um, the vehicle is yawed across the road um, and it's ended up actually in the paddock 50 metres to the right uh, having rolled several times. Um, Now the first two immediate things with this is you wonder well what if it had been you know a couple of metres further down the the road they would have had a side impact with the tree. The other thing is it's evident that even with the provision of clear zones and the like um, we can't uh, eliminate the harm that's being done so we need to start thinking differently about our approaches um, and rethink how we go about Uh, providing for roads uh, in these situations. Uh, Now what our crash investigations has certainly shown is there's a better understanding of how people leave the road, so the departure mechanisms as such. Um, And you can generally differentiate between a a very shallow drift off at a, a very low angle, Um, The other type is uh, a single yaw where the the vehicle starts rotating um, and goes off um, to the right and then you can have multiple yaws, the most common of which is a double yaw where the vehicle goes to the right, the driver has a steering input and then it it yaws around to the left. Um, So those uh, are the most prominent departure types. When you extrapolate that onto curves, um, again uh, similar occurrences, um, but what's interesting to note is on curves. If you often talk to practitioners about treating curves, they only consider the outside of the curve because the stereotype they have in mind is a um, understeer uh, and going off tangentially off the uh, curve before the apex. Um, but the your crashes are uh, prevalent on curves as well. And in amongst these departure mechanisms, you also need to consider, well, what does this mean for head-on collisions? Because most head-on collisions actually don't involve risk-taking associated with overtaking. It's the fact that a vehicle's lost control and there happens to be vehicles coming in the other direction. The problem is also exacerbated on curves because on curves you get super elevation, and therefore there's a height difference between the natural terrain and the formation, uh, therefore leading to increased propensity for rollover and that's where you get your spinal and head injuries. So if we uh, look at this curve here, what we're plotting is the lateral displacement of uh, vehicles on the x-axis relative to the edge of the road, uh, the edge of the traffic lane, and then a cumulative probability of achieving that lateral displacement. Uh, When you plot it out for all uh, rural crashes in general, you tend to get what that red line represents, um, which is where vehicles are tending to strike roadside hazards or, or coming to a stop because of that. When you start identifying crashes where they weren't, their their trajectory wasn't um, stopped by a roadside hazard, you start to get the line in blue to the right there. Um, So what it tells us is that vehicles do tend to go a long way, have a a large lateral displacement, um, and uh, when you consider their movement in isolation of hazards, they can have quite large displacements at times. So what this means for us is that clear zones cannot be relied upon in isolation to achieve safe system outcomes. Uh, Wide clear zones are often difficult to achieve anyway and the quality of the clear zones uh, can also be an issue, that is the the surface quality with trip hazards and the like. Um, Even wide clear zones do not converge towards zero FSI fatalities, so zero fatal and serious injury crashes. Um, and uh, with increasing clear zone width we note that rollover crashes also increase Uh, and the other thing to note is that centre barrier can actually assist with not only departures to the right and head-on collisions but due to that double yaw motion I showed earlier they can also help intercept some of those depart left type crashes as well. So on the note of crash barriers I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, crash barrier technology But fundamentally, uh, there there is a need to acknowledge that there are different crash barrier types out there. There's many reasons and rationales why we'd adopt different crash barrier types. And for example, there is a place for rigid barriers in in certain circumstances. Um, But the bulk of evidence around safe systems performance around corridors is is based on the application of um, wire rope barrier systems. But uh, fundamentally any flexible system uh, is thought to reduce the the harm um, in general. Um, Sometimes we get into um, nitpicking type uh, arguments around which barrier type and should they be, you know, uh, which type to apply and so on. It is more important that the barrier is there and you're managing the the energy of that departure. So let's not lose sight of that. Um, The evidence is certainly where you can achieve it, go for a flexible type. But, uh, you know, there are of course reasons why you might choose other barrier types. And I'll also acknowledge there is evolving barrier types and we need to be cognizant of how developments go in this area, um, but there are weak post systems that are demonstrating near flexible, uh, pref- flexible barrier type performance uh, in their harm reduction potential. So keep an eye out for those systems as well. If we uh, look at uh, some uh, cross sections and and consider what does a a harm minimisation approach to rural roads actually mean for us, um, historically we would have perceived something uh, that's shown on the screen there which is um, uh, a dual carriageway uh, system. Um, You'd have a road and then you'd have a clear zone either side where there were hazards in that clear zone you'd protect them with a crash barrier uh, and um, the divided roads would be separated with some sort of uh, wide medium. Um, So large footprint um, and uh, reliance on uh, large areas without any hazards in them. Uh, Also for a single carriageway road, a similar approach, you'd rely on those clear zones either side and protect any hazards in those uh, areas. What uh, we think uh, uh, the ideal harm minimisation approach now is, uh, with a uh, high standard rural roadway, uh, would be to have your four lanes there but ensure that the energy management is taken care of. So that is where you can achieve it, have continuous lengths of uh, barrier, both on the roadsides and in the centre of the road. Um, and where you can't achieve that, we've used the terminology of a run-out area, but the idea is you do all you can to safely manage the road departure in that space. That may uh, mean looking at very shallow uh, slopes um, and also even considering the types of hazards that extend beyond that runout area. Um, that's all in the consideration. But the idea is to focus on managing safe outcomes from that departure. The other advantage of uh, looking at this um, type of cross-section is that you can actually reduce the cross-sectional width um, and therefore that might Uh, pass on some advantages for example where extra funding could be put back into the barrier systems and the like. Likewise for our single carriageway roads again uh, we'd like to see the energy management in place and where you can install uh, continuous lengths of uh, flexible barrier there Um, and uh, ditto with the the advice on the run out areas. Now of course there are some other supporting approaches you can look at, Um, so one that's uh, been implemented uh, increasingly in Australia, and certainly the the Bruce Highway is a standout example of that, is the use of wide centreline treatment. Um, Again, the the same principles apply though in that you'd look to manage the energy wherever possible and then you could have a fallback position around the the wide centreline use there as well. Um, The other thing I'll note is that of course things like audio tactile line marking and the sealed shoulder. Um, have very good evidence behind them and you should look to uh, adopt these wherever possible. The other thing we know is that theoretically, of course, the closer you have the barrier to the edge of the road, the less the lateral impact forces on the vehicle occupants. But there is a practical point around this and you might want to provide for breakdowns um, or try to strike a balance between nuisance hits and things like this or maintenance considerations. So there are very practical reasons why you consider an offset of the barrier to the edge of the road. So I'll now uh, have a bit of a discussion on intersections and the first thing I want to note is clarify what we understand by system failures and again in his introduction Blair talked about the safe system and how we um, should expect drivers to make mistakes and errors. Um, I think this is a very good example um, of what we should be considering as a system failure. Imagine you're in the grey car here, you're coming up to this rural T-junction and uh, you're planning to execute a right turn. So you approach the junction and you start scanning left and right to uh, check where traffic is. You notice to your right there's a rigid truck and behind it is a light vehicle. As the situation unfolds, you're still scanning left and right, you're making a mental note of the spatial distribution of all the the objects at this intersection. You note the truck is indeed approaching, goes in the slip lane, isn't intending to turn left and you note the presence of the white vehicle beside it. At this point in time, you might quickly do a scan to left to check that's clear and then decide to pull out. A split second later, you can see that, where did this grey car come from? In fact, it was masked the entire length uh, of the approach uh, by that rigid truck. So again, this is a very good example of situations we place people in where errors can be expected. And we need a way to systemically deal with this sort of problem throughout the system, because one can imagine this type of a problem would be present for any junctions with this type of a geometry. So these are the sort of challenges we certainly face moving forward. So when it comes to safe system intersection design, we're really looking for design features that guarantee survivable impact speed and configurations. Um, And that previous example I provided gives a very good example. Another human factors phenomenon we also have to deal with is a look but did not see crash. So despite the fact that people might uh, gaze in a certain direction, they might not register that um, other objects are there. And uh, again, there is no feasible solution around that other than making a forgiving crash environment. The other thing we need to consider is what our default positions are. So for example, where we have signals, we should be providing protected turn manoeuvres uh, by default rather than uh, having it the other way around. We need to limit the points of conflict and uh, in doing so, simplify the decision-making task at the junctions. We need to consider geometry that mitigates the consequences of deliberate risk-taking and driver error. When you think about all the crashes we have at signalised junctions, a great proportion of them have to involve red light running. Someone's had to go on through a red light for there to be a conflict in the first place. Um, Again, we can look to behavioural measures and enforcement measures, but certain geometries we could adopt could also mitigate that problem as well. Uh, We also need to consider dynamic visual obstruction, as in the case I just highlighted. And uh, also uh, to show the infancy of our thinking here, um, what happens once vehicles have had their primary collision? Airbags have gone off, the crumple zones have been used up, where do vehicles end up once um, they have had that primary collision? Um, And you could give some further thought to where you place roadside furniture to mitigate that. Thank you. So, the key variables we need to consider regarding collisions, um, certainly at intersections, um, we, we all know intuitively as practitioners that energy is a function of speed and mass, um, but the other dimension there is the impact configuration can also be important and uh, with the innovation agenda moving forward, we can manipulate these three variables um, to start managing the consequences of crashes at intersections. Um, I'll just note that an energy uh, model uh, has been developed, it's called XChemX, um, but fundamentally it's looking to quantify the probability of a death or serious injury um, should uh, two vehicles impact. That's being developed into a tool for assessing intersections and uh, uh, in the future I think we'll have many such tools to help guide us in our decision making. So here's an example of that type of analysis. And what's important here is it's changing our thinking about the way we view uh, the the sort of capability and and capacity of intersections to deliver that harm reduction. Uh, So here we have a traditional uh, multi-lane crossroads, 80K and 60K road meeting, um, signalised intersection. Uh, We can see the pink dots there represent all the possible points of conflict, um, and the blue dots are, are those for pedestrians. On the right we see a probability plot of the probability of receiving a a, a fatal or serious injury um, at each of those conflict points. Um, So uh, the circumference represents uh, almost certain or 100% chance uh, that you will be killed or seriously injured if an impact results. Um, What we'd like to do of course is move all of these points of conflict to converge in the centre there and if we draw a line in the sand and say well so that's 10% probability of death or serious injury, uh, let's aspire to that in seeking uh, solutions in our design approach. Now the value of this is when you start comparing it to alternative designs. So here we have an example of a a, uh, roundabout, multi-lane roundabout um, and uh, we can see the plot on the right shows that we do start to get a convergence. Um, towards the centre of uh, those plots. So um, in other words, it's starting to become increasingly difficult to to, uh, receive a death or serious injury given this uh, uh, geometry. So where we can go with this is start thinking about the innovative ways we can manage and and design and operate intersections. And uh, we can see here, uh, for example, out of the UK, we know that signalised roundabouts uh, are quite a feature over there. Um, Here you can see an analysis on uh, one of those uh, junctions and you can see the benefits are immediately evident. Likewise, uh, in terms of the innovation front, uh, one thing that's come out of uh, the Netherlands has been the use of speed humps on stop lines. And here, if we uh, do an, an analysis, Um, we can see that uh, although we don't quite converge on that 10% inner circle, we certainly improve the performance of the the intersection in terms of reducing the harm being done. Um, So again, it's a a step in the right direction and might be a good retrofit or or mitigating option for us into the future. Now with this stuff pie in the sky, well indeed in uh, Victoria this uh, has already been uh, implemented. Uh, and we can see the photo on the left showing uh, an implementation of one of these uh, speed humps on the stop line. Um, one, one thing about these uh, d- designs is that uh, they're, they're not just sort of uh, thrown in there. They have been uh, uh, gone through an engineering process of design, taking into account all the different road user types. The other thing I'll note is experience from elsewhere, and we have a case here in in Adelaide where a uh, raised platform was put in place and uh, there were several iterations before the slope was identified that achieved the desired outcomes. So again, we need to have an open mind to the fact that we might need to fine tune and refine these designs over time uh, to make sure we can uh, achieve the desired outcomes in terms of the the speed behaviour and response uh, to the system. Um, Obviously there's ITS solutions that can be adopted as well. Um, Here we have an example from New Zealand where uh, when a a vehicle is detected on a side road, um, a sign lights up on the the main road with a priority, lowering the speed limit. Um, And therefore through that, you can mitigate some of the crash risk uh, should a crash occur. Um, And there's also better compliance because this only happens when um, uh, the, the conditions are relevant and there is a vehicle on the side street. Finally, there might be other low-cost ideas we can pursue. So often, practitioners have a, a perspective that safe system is about gold plating and very high-cost transformational projects. Well, the, the reality is you can achieve uh, safe systems outcomes with uh, some traffic cones and, and a, uh, a, a barrier, a, a netting barrier or something between them. Uh, The point is you follow those key fundamental principles Um, and uh, here we have been using left in, left out for many, many decades in Australia. Um, The modified T-junction has been a feature of local area traffic management, Um, why not extending these to other situations as well. Um, Four-way stop signs have been uh, trialled in Australia, they're uh, big in America. Um, again there might be some innovative approaches we can use uh, adopting four-way giveaway signs and plateaus for example and of course mini roundabouts uh, is another option there.
1: Great thanks Jeremy and um, I guess that uh, highlights the need for innovation particularly around intersections and if we, we want to get to um, zero deaths and injuries um, in, in that 20-30 uh, year timeframe we need to move, be moving to more of these sorts of solutions I think. Uh, just a reminder before I continue on about uh, if there's any questions, please uh, enter those into the, the chat function. Uh, and if you can, just include the slide number too so we can um, refer back to that as we try to respond to those questions. Moving on now to the really uh, important issue around speeds, and we've already touched on this issue uh, a few times throughout the presentation, uh, an issue familiar to, to many of you, I'm sure. Um, and it's certainly very high on the, um, uh, the minds of the public as well. So it receives a lot of public attention, Uh, and is often a source for uh, debate and um, uh, concern from the public. Just firstly, I I mentioned earlier around these critical speeds uh, of impact. This is quite old data here uh, in this graphic, but um, if you look at the line on the left here, this is an impact between a car and a pedestrian. Uh, And what it shows is the chance of a fatal outcome from that collision increases dramatically with that increase in speed. And uh, around about 30 k per hour, Um, Above that the chance of death and uh, death increases dramatically. Uh, There's similar uh, values around um, intersection side impact crashes about 50 K per hour uh, and for head-on crashes at about 70 K per hour. What we do know from our recent research and this is documented in the compendium is um, when we start to consider the new research, but especially when we consider fatal and serious injury outcomes, all of these curves move to the left So rather than it being a 30 for a pedestrian car impact it's probably more like a 20k is the the impact speed above which we'll get an increase dramatically in in death and serious injury. So what this does is it gives us really more knowledge now about um, how we might design our networks to eliminate death and injury. It doesn't mean we want these speeds at all locations but what it does mean is if we want higher speeds we need to provide the infrastructure to help avoid these collisions Uh, or if they do occur for them to be uh, at energy levels uh, below that threshold, where death and serious injury might occur. Another key point to make is we have a very, very solid evidence base around the link between speed and safety outcomes. Uh, It's probably the most solid knowledge we have in road safety, full stop. Uh, This graphic comes from well over 100 uh, studies around the world. Uh, and it shows very, very clearly the um, importance of uh, changes in speed and the impact on crash outcomes. Uh, and so from very small changes in speeds above the mean, um, we get quite large increase in crash outcomes. And that's particularly the case for the more severe crash types. So in terms of fatal um, crashes, a very small increase in speeds gives quite a large increase in fatal outcomes. And that's why we see these campaigns around you know, wipe off five case per hour. Uh, because any small change in that mean speed across our network produces a very, very large benefit. Um, Another point to raise is around the cost uh, proposition as well around speed management. Um, And this uh, information comes from some great work from Jeremy's team in in, um, uh, Adelaide. Uh, And it shows comparatively the safety benefit from a a drop of speed limit of 10k per hour. Uh, and what you'd need to do from an infrastructure perspective to match that same benefit. Uh, And you can see there that the figures in the 100k environment, um, a 20% reduction from that 10k drop in speed limit, less than a million dollars to enable that. If you wanted to have that same safety benefit from other infrastructure solutions, we're talking about uh, $500 million in in some cases, or even more. So the key point here is it's a very, very cost-beneficial solution. Uh, We still have a lot of issues, though, to work through in terms of making sure that we bring the public along uh, and making sure that speed limits are appropriate for uh, the function of roads. And that's an absolutely key point in this new compendium and in some of the recent AustRoads work. Uh, There's a really strong focus now on understanding the importance of road function. So that's all about setting the objectives on our road networks, uh, not on a road by road basis, but across the network. Uh, In some cases, we want roads that are a high speed. We wanna get people from A to B, uh, goods from A to B quickly uh, and safely. And so therefore we build those networks, uh, those, those routes to accommodate that higher speed. In other locations, we wanna use the network for different purposes. We wanna have um, a mixture of uh, different road users, uh, including uh, perhaps pedestrians and cyclists. And in those cases, the infrastructure's gotta look different. Uh, and that's gonna be matched by those lower speed limits and the supported infrastructure uh, in those environments. And we're seeing a lot of the Austroids guides now um, reference this approach, this movement in place. Um, And certainly a lot of the Austroids guides um, have a lot of detail on this now, uh, particularly the guide to traffic management. Uh, And when we actually uh, talk about movement in place, um, what it does is it combines the discussion around safety and mobility. It makes it two sides of the same coin. Uh, And so when you've made that decision, uh, uh, and there's been agreement from the public, from the key stakeholders and politically, It means we can do what we need to do to to manage the types of traffic on that network, uh, the speeds at which they travel at. Uh, And so it makes it very easy to have those debates about the need for perhaps more significant infrastructure or lower speeds or or vice versa. It means also we can actually put in place infrastructure to facilitate those higher speeds uh, and and perhaps uh, segregate out those more vulnerable road users. So absolutely key is this movement in place um, issue. Uh, and I'd urge you to look at uh, the content in this compendium but also other Austroids guides. So the really key amongst this is this need to match traffic speeds, the road uh, infrastructure, and the knowledge around the road use and function. Uh, so this decision making around what is the function on this road. Uh, and there's terminology from New Zealand which we really like uh, uh, in Australia, and that is situations where uh, we want to uh, have higher speeds, Um, and perhaps the infrastructure is not there there right now to facilitate that safely, we need to engineer up. We need to improve additional infrastructure to facilitate the higher speeds, including protection uh, for our vulnerable road users. In other situations, we might decide we want uh, lower speeds because there's vulnerable road users, uh, or perhaps we haven't got the funding to actually put in place the infrastructure we need for those higher speeds. Uh, And so, uh, perhaps on a full-time or temporary basis, we reduce the speed limits uh, and that's gotta be supported with appropriate infrastructure. Um, and just on that point, um, it's really important to match the environment to the intended bunch and speed limit. This is a fairly typical cross-section, um, a wide bit of network, downhill run, which means uh, perhaps slightly higher speeds, uh, not much roadside activity, and it may be in a the situation there's a school uh, or a, an area where there's a lot of roadside activity involving pedestrians, uh, for instance, And so maybe the desire here is for a 40k per hour speed limit. Um, Now this road uh, to me uh, doesn't tell me to drive at 40k and so really we need uh, what is sometimes termed a self-explaining road to support that function and to support support that speed limit and that can actually be very easy to do through either um, paint or through constructed uh, islands uh, and we can put in place measures to actually explain really what the function of this bit of network uh, is and what the appropriate speed should be. So some guidance around that uh, in this compendium, but i would also point you towards um, a couple of recent documents produced uh, by Austroads, which give the solutions that you might need to support the speeds you're after on firstly, urban arterial roads, but also on the rural road network. So I'd urge you to look at those uh, documents as well. So in summary, I'd say that um, speed, uh, certainly controversial, but I think we're making some good headway now with our understanding. Uh, very cost effective as we mentioned, we get immediate benefits from a change in speed limit, Um, the benefits are proven, like I say it's probably the most solid evidence we have in road safety, Um, but also we see over time those benefits increase. So as an example um, uh, in Australia we changed our uh, urban uh, default speed limit from 60 to 50k per hour and we saw an immediate benefit from that so that, that benefits actually improved over time as uh, road users actually uh, bring their speeds down to match that new speed limit uh, and that's even when we take out the effect of congestion so our free-running speeds has shown us that um, longer-term convergence so look, that's a very quick summary around speed and I'll pass back now to uh, Jeremy to talk about some of the other vulnerable road user issues
2: thank you Bear um, yes and I'll be uh, briefly touching upon uh, vulnerable road user issues um, and the first thing to note, as Blair alluded to, is that the fact that uh, we can use that movement and place uh, paradigm uh, certainly as a strong ally for safety um, and in fact uh, with the, the move now towards vibrant, liveable uh, cities, um, we can certainly look, identify the synergies between that movement and place paradigm and safety and we should be looking for every opportunity we can to use that to take things forward. Um, We're not totally starting from scratch. A lot of thinking has gone into these things. Uh, Certainly within Australia, um, approaches have been evolved over the decades. Um, out of North America there's a movement called NACTO who uh, is thinking seriously about uh, the disruption in this space. And also uh, you know from Europe we have, they've got a lot of experience uh, and certainly out of the Netherlands and similar countries uh, managing uh, bicycles uh, on their road networks as well. So there's a lot to draw upon there um, and we also need to acknowledge that politically there's a lot of uh, Uh, pressure on to create active, you know, create and support uh, active travel and um, again we have a role in providing infrastructure that will allow for safe active travel uh, activity. Now when it comes to pedestrians uh, some of the the issues are are still fairly consistent in that uh, it's generally uh, if you look at a distribution of crashes for most of our Uh, capital cities, uh, there's a concentration in the central business districts, although a lot of the adoption of much lower speed limits these days has uh, mitigated a lot of that problem. Um, Then the next layer down, we have collisions in high-pedestrian activity areas, your shopping strips and the like, Um, and uh, so the the first two are sort of somewhat defined because uh, you've got uh, the space, the the location of these uh, crashes means you know where to put your uh, resources and efforts and treatments. Much harder to deal with is the spatially random nature of crashes along arterials. And then it it becomes an exposure issue that pedestrian crashes are generally randomly distributed along your your higher volume roads in the the suburban areas. Um, And we also need to acknowledge that intoxication is still a significant issue um, that that needs to be dealt with. And again, um, just finding an infrastructure solution for that will be challenging. So you need to think broadly across the system. In terms of treatments, uh, certainly lower speed limits uh, is is the standout uh, thing to strive for if you can achieve it. Um, And again, don't lose context without that movement and place paradigm there. Um, Treatments with vertical deflection uh, have also uh, shown to be very successful. Um, and uh, the other thing you might want to consider, which uh, is totally in your control, is things like dwell on red. So that is in the wee hours of the night where you might have a, an entertainment precinct, uh, why not dwell all the traffic signals in that location on red to calm the traffic uh, and then they therefore turn green when called upon or detect when a car is detected. Um, Strategically, though, in the long term, as Blair alluded to, we've really got to look to this movement in place framework um, and that's a context in which we'll we'll achieve the largest gains for uh, vulnerable road users. Now what we have here is an example of a, a hierarchy of treatment we are suggesting um, and this uh, comes from another Osroads Guide which is the Safe Systems Assessment Framework, but it fundamentally reinforces what we're, we're asking the, the new approach to be here, which is you go to treatments that have the, the most potential for harm elimination and work your way down from there. You'll notice with this that we uh, we uh, talk about the, the uh, hierarchy of primary supporting um, treatments Uh, The primary are capable of uh, achieving those harm elimination potential or or virtually achieving it, supporting get you a considerable way along there. And we differentiate supporting between those treatments that can be retrofitted to get you to primary and those which uh, necessarily can't. And then of course there's always other considerations that can be taken into account. On the rightmost column we look at where that intersection of risk mitigation can be around exposure, likelihood or severity. Now, when it comes to uh, cycling, um, I guess fundamentally uh, the Dutch st- make this statement that you mix traffic where speeds are low, separate traffic where speeds are too high, and introduce targeted speed reduction where pedestrians and cyclists meet motorised traffic flows. So that is all somewhat logical. Uh, the challenge, of course, is doing this in practice. But again, we need to look to those movement and place contexts, I think, to to move uh, to to be able to achieve these sort of things. Uh, The other thing, as I alluded to, is there's a lot of good experience out there and we should be looking to learn from others, especially when it comes to management of risk for cyclists. Um, And For example, one of the key learnings from the Dutch experience is to have vehicle setbacks, so storage areas where vehicles can turn out of the flow of main traffic and then focus their attention on, on looking for interactions with cyclists. Another key thing of Dutch road design is these protective blisters on corners, which provide an added level of protection for cyclists. The other note I'll make is uh, we know that uh, the Dutch do uh, have cyclists interacting with roundabouts um, and uh, one point of distinction there is that Dutch motorists would expect to give way both entering the roundabout and exiting the roundabout. So that's something culturally which is developed differently. Um, But the point here is that there's still much, much scope for innovation regarding the way we adopt and use roundabouts. Uh, When it comes to motorcyclists, uh, they certainly do continue to provide a a challenge for for the safe systems perspective Um, and in fact it's very difficult for us to uh, understand how we can achieve a safe system for motorcyclists given the the current uh, vehicle based paradigms. Uh, Here you can see a table where we list the sort of treatments that you might want to go for. Um, But uh, the primary treatment is still around separation, so it might be a separate motorcycle lane and freeways. Supporting treatments might be allowing the motorcycles to share with bus and taxi lanes to help reduce their exposure. Um, But beyond that, um, it's all the treatments that you'd probably be familiar with um, around consistent design approaches, good delineation, skid resistance and so on. Now, just a note on barrier protection for motorcyclists, which can be contentious, but uh, half of all motorcycle barrier collisions occur with motorcyclists in a sliding posture. Um, But we do need to acknowledge that severe injuries can still occur at 30k impacts with the barrier posts. Um, And uh, although barriers are emerging that are more forgiving uh, to motorcyclists, they are certainly not um, what I'd describe as uh, helping us achieve the safe system's aspirations. Uh, So we need to watch the development in this space and certainly if we do uh, increase exposure to these barrier systems we'll need to keep monitoring to see what's going on there. And there's some good information that you you can look up regarding uh, the motorcycle treatment options.
1: Great. In our last few slides we'll just turn our attention to some of the tools and um, I think one of the issues we faced, um, we're 15 years now into the safe system approach uh, in Australia and similar in, in New Zealand, Um, And I think what's really changed in the last couple of years now is the development of some some new tools uh, that really help us understand um, that uh, this is a vision, uh, helps us put in place the interim steps to get to that vision uh, and helps us understand the implications of of what we're actually doing. So I'm just going to talk through some of those tools just very quickly and again they are well documented in the compendium. First and foremost, I think one of the major um, failings of road safety infrastructure in Australia right now is around um, setting appropriate targets for infrastructure and tracking our performance towards those targets. So we mentioned we're trying to get to zero and well as soon as possible, but probably realistically 20, 30, 40 years. What we need to do then is work towards that target and set interim goals and we haven't done that in the infrastructure space uh, very well. Uh, there are global targets around for infrastructure. Uh, the uh, OsRAP, IRAP three-star rating for instance. Uh, this example I think uh, is really interesting where it comes from. This is actually from a local government in Victoria. Uh, and they've started to develop some targets and they're really the first um, in Australia even um, quicker than uh, our state road agencies to develop these sorts of targets. And what they've done is a process to identify what their goals might be uh, and then what the targets are that they need to work towards and then obviously they can actually track their performance against those targets. So I won't go through all of these, but just to give you a feel for it, um, one goal is they want a lot of travel uh, undertaken uh, on the high-speed roads where there are um, side barrier protection Uh, and and mid-barrier protection and so therefore their key performance indicator their KPI is that the of travel on high-speed roads uh, where there is that protection or or vice versa the low-speed roads uh, where it's it's not present and so in all these areas they put in place these targets um, and they gather the data uh, and they they measure their their progress towards those targets and like I say this is missing in Australia right now Um, there is a project we're working on internationally to develop these uh, key performance indicators for Australia uh, and that should be ready um, later this year, early next year. Uh, but certainly it's something to make a start on right now. The other thing we've got is a lot more knowledge around the um, crash outcomes, uh, predictions of where fatal and serious injuries may occur. Uh, I mentioned we're, we're very keen for a, uh, a proactive approach uh, on this front, um, not chasing our tails in terms of the last uh, crash that occurred. Uh, in Australia, we have the Australian National Risk Assessment Model, Um, And what that does is uh, provide a consistent tool uh, to assess risk uh, and to predict where fatal and serious crashes are likely to occur in in future. Um, It is based on crash data, but also the design of the roads. So what is that um, geometric design? What are the features present uh, that can either improve safety or in fact um, increase our risk? Uh, And these models are getting quite accurate now to help us uh, identify where uh, crash locations are likely to occur but they also help us to to calculate what the best improvements might be to to get us towards uh, zero outcomes. So there's a website at the bottom there for you to find out more information on that. Um, In terms of, um, I've mentioned a couple of times now, this risk rating, um, uh, AusRap, IRAP, KiwiRap uh, over in New Zealand. Uh, And this is the idea that we do um, uh, rate the the quality of our road infrastructure. Uh, It doesn't take into account um, specifically the crash history. Uh, It's all about the design, and based on the research we've done over many years, what's the chance of a crash happening with different configurations? And very much like a a rating for cars, a star rating, a five-star car is um, the safest, one-star least safe. We can do the same sort of rating on our roads as well. So a one-star road is the least safe. And what we do know that as we uh, increase from a one-star to a two-star road, the chance of a fatal or serious injury basically halves. Or those uh, the, the amount of trauma halves uh, up to about a five star which is very close to that safe system outcome that we're after. So again these tools are, are being made available uh, and certainly helping us to both set targets and to track our performance towards targets. The last tool is um, perhaps the most recent uh, and there's a, a, an Osterode's guide on this, uh, the safe system assessment framework. One of the big barriers around safe system that we identified was, it was uh, all very theoretical Uh, It was a big problem and so we've developed a tool that breaks this problem into bite-sized chunks. Uh, And what it does is allows a subjective assessment of the risk of any um, infrastructure project. Um, And it does that by breaking things down into the the key crash types that result in death and serious injury and the key elements of risk, so that being exposure, likelihood and severity. So for instance for run-off road crashes, it's one of our leading causes of uh, death and serious injury. Um, we can we can play with exposure, likelihood and severity uh, and so in terms of severity, it's things like the speed uh, or roadside uh, features that are actually present. And we can actually rate each of these cells of this matrix to identify uh, where our risks lie uh, and how far off a safe system outcome we actually are with our current designs. Uh, we can then use that to compare uh, different t- uh, design options as well. The other um, very useful feature of this tool is it brings together The um, information not just from infrastructure but also a knowledge around the other pillars and we mentioned at the outset the the need to work across pillars and so it's really encouraging um, people in my role uh, infrastructure managers um, to consider our other partners so back to those examples I gave earlier um, when we're looking at a a project uh, is there something we can do to work with emergency response to get a a quicker response time Uh, working with the police around enforcement uh, understanding the uh, road user issues and the vehicle types so there's some prompts to ensure we start thinking about those issues in more detail and uh, encouraging us to engage with our stakeholders. That uh, tool now has been uh, out and in about for about 18 months uh, and it's used uh, right across Australia and uh, in New Zealand and indeed uh, internationally now as well. Uh, this graphic here shows some of the benefits we're getting. Uh, the orange uh, bar to the left in each case is the crash risk um, before any change was made, existing conditions. Uh, The yellow bar in the middle is uh, based on an ordinary design uh, process. Uh, But when we really start thinking about the safe system options, um, the green bar, we can actually see we can bring the risks down uh, by quite a large amount. Um, And in fact, the examples we've seen, sometimes there's an additional cost, uh, but sometimes there's no additional cost to do that. It's just a different way of thinking sometimes. So these tools are uh, developing, and I think um, I'd really urge you to look in the compendium in uh, and, and those base documents um, around the use of these tools. Uh, they help really to understand the concepts um, as much as being a tool to assess uh, risks themselves. So a really useful training uh, tool for us uh, going forward. Uh, very lastly, just some key references. Um, obviously this compendium is you go to a uh, place uh, around knowledge on the safe system and infrastructure. Uh, I've listed there a bunch of other reports produced recently by Ostroads that relate to safe systems and infrastructure. Uh, And again, I'd urge you to jump onto the the website from Austroads to download those and to to read through them. Uh, So look, thank you. Um, I'll pass back now for any questions or comments.
0: Thank you, Blair and Jeremy. So we've already received some positive feedback from the audience about the great information you've provided, so thank you for audience sending your comments through. In terms of questions, we have received a larger number and we'll try our best to get through as many as we can. But the first question relates to slide number 16, which is, there's a focus on fatal and serious injury. What about perceptions of safety by active transport users? This seems to be ignored by engineers. Can you provide some comments?
1: I can start on that if you like, um, certainly there's um, a need to be improving um, what we do around uh, active modes and that's a, definitely a recognition in the last few years including from Austroads. Um, there is uh, sometimes a close match between that um, that perception of risk and, and actual risk, uh, sometimes there's a, a bit of a disconnect but uh, yeah, certainly there's a need um, to, to be uh, understanding uh, those risks uh, and improving the situation to really encourage uh, active modes. Um, and I've got to say, I've really noticed the shift in the last couple of years on this issue, which I'm, I'm pleased about. Uh, there's new projects coming from Austrode uh, on this issue uh, very soon as well. So we'll have some more tools, hopefully, to help us uh, along those lines.
0: Yeah, thank you, Blair. Uh, another question related to this slide as well. So do minor incidents provide a reference to the potential sites of future major incidents? If so, why ignore them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. and um, so, there's certainly um, some crash types that perhaps were minor that uh, very easily could have been far more serious, uh, could have been fatal or, or, or serious. And think of perhaps uh, in a high speed environment, a uh, head on crash that for some reason uh, everyone survived and, and there was either no injury or a minor injury. And we want to know a lot about those crashes. We need to know um, uh, what's happened because they are indicators for where potential fatal and serious injuries may occur. Uh, And so we see some states in Australia and over in New Zealand, uh, in New Zealand they have uh, what they term death and serious injury equivalents uh, where they actually look at crash types and speed environment and and use that as a basis for prediction around whether perhaps it may have been a, a fatal or serious outcome. So certainly of high interest to us and so when I say we're most interested in eliminating death and serious injury, we're interested in using whatever source of information we can to help us along that pathway. It's not about forgetting about those more minor injuries, it's about using all of our data uh, in a really, um, uh, in a smarter way.
2: And an addition I'll make to that is into the future, um, we need to start considering old collisions as a a systems failure. So it's in that context that we'll actually start understanding the full spectrum of error. And uh, if you consider, you know, there's probably thousands of errors being, uh, being caused out there Um, and only a very, very tiny percentage of them result in harm on a daily basis. Uh, But the broader interest moving into the future will be trying to understand the basis of that error and then systemically responding to that across the road transport network.
1: we are seeing actually quite a change now in technologies to allow this to happen. So some of the recent work we're doing is looking at um, telematics data from within vehicles. So a lot of vehicles now, whether they're fleets or uh, perhaps parents, uh, looking to lower insurance premiums and uh, install devices and, and vehicles and that's uh, bouncing information back to um, a central spot and we can tell from that um, things like um, harsh braking or uh, areas where even there's um, perhaps high side uh, force on, on the driver or on the vehicle uh, and so we're starting to, to, to analyze those sorts of sources of data as well to really broaden our, our source of knowledge uh, and like I say it's, it's trying to gather in a smart way all the information we can to help us identify where future crashes will happen.
0: Yeah okay thanks for clarifying that one. Uh, Another question relating is if just focusing on fatal and serious injuries might we be missing opportunities to reduce those by identifying other crashes?
1: Yeah look similar response there is certainly don't ignore uh, these other sources of data it's really about gathering all that data but using using it a bit more smartly. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind the objective is elimination of death and serious injury Certainly, along the way, we want to reduce those um, minor injuries. You know, there's traffic delays and all sorts of costs attached to those as well. It's really about the refocus, though, on the fatal and serious outcomes. Um, certainly not saying to ignore the rest. It's really about uh, just being a bit smarter.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. A question from Ed. So he's asked in relation to slide number 29. So has any wire rope barriers being tested on a curved alignment? So that's the first question he's asked.
2: Uh, yes, yes. So certainly why road right, barriers are used on curved alignments and I am aware of uh, testing in New South Wales which can uh, define minimum radii and so on associated with that. So I uh, suggest you contact the, the road authority in your jurisdiction to to clarify uh, their, their guidance around that. But yes, certainly can be a feature on yep. uh, hills roads to a certain uh, radio. Yeah, he's-
0: Another question he's asked is, uh, they rely on tension to perform. How is this managed if the barrier is not replaced after a strike on a curve?
2: Yes, well, that's certainly a, an ongoing maintenance issue for road, road authorities, and um, we need to start rethinking and, and looking at innovative approaches to that, that maintenance quandary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, one feature is that they can be, uh, the post can be replaced and, and re-tensioned quite rapidly uh, with a wire rope. Um, and uh, there's there's some advantages uh, in using wire rope in that, that instance. Um, and in fact, the Swedes, uh, when they put in their two plus one systems, uh, uh, promoted the fact that they could drop the wire rope in the centre line and have vehicles traverse it if they needed to divert traffic, for example.
0: Okay, thank you. I hope that's answered your question, Ed. Uh, another question relating to slide 34. So we have a few uh, questions about slide 34. So what about the use of raised pavement markers, for example, line, at least for the roadside?
2: Yep, certainly. So I I did mention audio tactile line marking, raised pavement markers, and anything which assists with the delineation there. Um, Certainly the audio tactile has been proven around uh, keeping vehicles on the road. Um, But uh, again, all these things play a key role. But again, what we're trying to focus people on is keep using and doing what you've been doing, but also consider the energy management options. And that's where the the barrier clear zone interaction uh, is important as the new area of focus.
1: We've seen a little bit of um, interest in um, those audio tactile line markings used in association with the wire rope barrier from a more maintenance perspective, so you mentioned there's strikes against those barriers. So a bit of uh, work underway now just to try and find that sweet spot about where to use both of these, um, where it's most cost effective to do that, and that's both from a safety perspective but also uh, from an asset uh, management perspective.
0: Okay. Another question relating to this is with wide painted median treatment shouldn't the width be set to allow a barrier system to be installed at a later date?
2: Um, as an academic I'd say yes. Um, there's actually all sorts of national debate about how wide that, that centre space should be um, and of course there's sort of uh, reasons for and against. Um, But ultimately, I'd like to think that uh, we would keep a a retrofit option alive uh, should we go into a a project or scheme, but that would be dependent on the way uh, the business case was worked up, I suppose.
0: Mm. Okay, thank you. Thanks for answering that one. Another question relating relating to slide 41, so is this tool still being developed as a web-based application? Yep, slide 41.
1: Yep, so that's um, certainly something that's been worked on now, uh, it's a really a prototype at this stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there's further work here in Victoria right now to introduce um, uh, the pedestrian and cycling elements to this because it's really a vehicle based tool uh, and, and at this stage it's really about vehicles with equal mass and obviously we never get a situation or very rarely get a situation where vehicles of equal mass strike each other so a bit of development work been undertaken uh, on that aspect. Uh, and then into the future, near future we're looking at introducing elements around uh, the likelihood of crashes so not all of these um, conflict points have got equal likelihood of uh, actually occurring so we're trying to introduce a few more smarts here um, to uh, make this tool a bit more usable and then the plan is to make it uh, to release it and make it available for everyone to use and to try new designs and to understand the input impacts of um, what those designs might be
0: yeah great Thanks for answering. Another question relating to the next slide, so slide 42. We have a few questions on this one. So how much of the reduction is due to the, reduc- the reduction in design speed?
2: Um, in, in terms of sign speed, I think the, the um, or what we've got here is a scheme where there's a, a speed limit applying to that, that length of road. Uh, and then the driver has to navigate the geometry. So so predominantly it's being controlled by the geometry there relative to the, the posted speed limit for that approach leg. Okay,
1: thank you. Yeah it maybe a bit misleading that that um sixty and eighty are the approach speeds from each direction. I think from memory that forty and fifty is actually the values that were used in terms of the, the vehicle speed as they um enter the intersection. Uh, I could be wrong there, but I think that's the case.
0: Mm, okay. And a question from Bevan, so we've asked, he's asked, uh, what happened to provision for pedestrians in this slide? Yeah, in this yeah, particular can slide, on, uh, again, mm. you can see
2: the, the blue,
0: the
2: blue dots here. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so asked, then, what yeah. I haven't stated is the pedestrian probabilities, uh, but generally for, for a lot of schemes due to the speeds of impact or interaction, um, yes, there'll be, most of the pedestrian points would be plotted on the circumference of those circles. So, uh, mm-hmm. certain
1: death or injury. Perhaps the uh, comments more related to safety at roundabouts, so just a quick comment on that. Uh, we've done reviews on this issue, and uh, we have found um, that d- uh, roundabouts that are designed appropriately actually have quite a significant safety benefit for pedestrians. However, we're also aware that there are some designs that don't adequately provide for pedestrians. So, really urge you to consider pedestrians when you do design roundabouts, because when done properly, we're finding some quite remarkable benefits for pedestrians as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. So question from Ian, he's asked, has there been any research into the contribution to intersection crashes of the passenger side front pillar obstructing visibility to vehicles approaching along a priority road from the left? So it's very detailed, but yeah, Yeah. got that question.
2: It's very detailed. I mean, it can be an influence in crashes, but actually conducting the research on that is very, very challenging. Um, and I think we'd have to divert to in-depth studies to try to reveal that. Um, There have been occasional cases and the like, uh, but the ability to build up a full sample to the point where you'd be able to do statistical analysis uh, is very problematic. Mm,
0: Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, so a question from Cathy. So she's asked, how do practitioners manage the challenge that is community expectations and their reluctance to lower their speed and adhere to strategies that will keep them safer on the roads? How do we communicate this to the community?
1: Uh, Great question and it's the question of our time. I think this is one that we really must uh, put some effort into I believe the solution here is uh, the tools that have been developed around movement in place that uh, We actually have tools now to allow us to have that conversation with the community And I'm thinking here for instance on an urban arterial environment uh, We can actually show the impact um, of different decisions So do you want uh, more vehicles on this network? And you can sort of dial up the vehicle numbers and see the, the, the ability for pedestrians and, and cyclists, for instance, to travel safely, uh, drop down. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. I think these sorts of tools that are being developed now uh, through Austroads and through Austro- uh, uh, road agencies um, give us the, uh, what's needed to actually uh, have that uh, that educated debate with the public. Um, I also believe we haven't really um, got together the tools and advice around how to properly engage with the community. There are some fantastic examples throughout Australia and New Zealand where people are engaging on this. Uh, there's examples where it's a bottom-up uh, issue that the community are, are wanting these changes. Um, so I think we perhaps need some guidance and advice around how, to, how best to do it. So I think this is a challenge for us going forward um, and we need to tackle it as soon as possible because, it's, as we've said, it's got such huge impacts in terms of safety outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Thanks for clarifying. A few questions relating to slide 49. So is the impact of speed equal combined speed? i.e. head-on of two vehicles at 30 kilometers per hour, does that equal 60 kilometers per hour? Are you able to kind yeah. of expand on that?
1: Yeah, so um, in fact, in the two-day workshops, we showed a, a really good uh, video, actually it was produced by the the TV show Mythbusters, you've probably all heard of that, and you can probably Google uh, or find that on YouTube, but uh, essentially it's, it's each vehicle traveling at 70k per hour. Um, mm. So yeah, that's, that's the actual answer there. Um, And there's actually, um, in that video, that uh, Mythbusters video, there's a good comparison of a vehicle travelling at, uh, I think it was 70k per hour striking a a brick wall uh, and then those two vehicles travelling at 70k per hour and just uh, comparing the energy. And effectively what happens when two vehicles strike head-on is the energy shared throughout both of those vehicles equally, uh, if they're of equal mass, uh, and that's uh, in ideal circumstances. Uh, whereas that one vehicle striking a, a rigid object uh, is just um, the energy shared just within that one vehicle.
0: Mm. Okay, thank you. So, so
2: one thing you might notice, this is a, is a simplification, but in reality the mass also matters, and actually the strongest relationships between uh, injury uh, and a variable called delta v is, um, is has been well established. Um, but generally, in a vehicle collision, uh, each occupant will be subject to differing delta v. So it is a bit more complicated than that, but for the initial pioneering we're doing with these development tools and the like, uh, we're just assuming vehicles have equal mass to simplify things in the first instance.
0: Okay, thank you. One last question is, for, high, for non-high speed routes, would you promote legislation for speed reduction to 70 kilometres per hour?
2: I think I think the answer to that is how you know strategically what are you doing with the infrastructure around that as well. So as Blair was indicating, I mean you you can put up speed signs, but you're probably going to get low compliance, and you need mm-hmm. to back it up with with other treatments. And you know the self explaining roads is is very important. So uh, yes, it could be attempted, um, and maybe you could use that as a default starting point. But I think that's what we'd appeal to is that consider your default starting points, and then engineer up or down as appropriate.
0: Mm, excellent. Thanks for clarifying. So unfortunately we'll have to end this session soon, but we apologise if we weren't able to answer your questions, but what we'll do is we'll collate the questions and prepare a Q&A document and we'll email you once after the session once it's available. However, you can get in contact with us if you do have a burning question. But uh, before we sign off, I'd like to let you know of the upcoming webinars that we have lined up. So as you can see on this slide, we have a webinar on the 15th of May on back best practice in road safety infrastructure programs. So for many years, investment in road safety infrastructure in Australia and New Zealand has taken a bottom-up approach of targeting safety improvements at locations with an established safety problem. While this approach served well in the past, it doesn't fully embrace the safe system philosophy on which the road safety strategies are based. This webinar will present best practice recommendations for the development of road safety infrastructure programs that align with the safe system approach. We then have another webinar on the update Auschwitz pedestrian facility selection tool on the 29th of May and we're also holding program update webinars for each of our programs such as safety, network and connected and automated vehicles and we'll post up information and dates once details are finalized but you could go on our website for more information and to register for these events. And for those who aren't aware, our webinars are now available as podcasts. Simply search for Ostroads on your podcast app, or you could use our RSS feed, so feel free to subscribe. And the last exciting news I'd like to announce is that Osroads has partnered with RMS New South Wales to bid to host the World Road Congress in Sydney in 2023. So this is an opportunity to showcase some of our groundbreaking innovation and play an active role in shaping the future of our global community please support Australia and New Zealand's bid and join us on the road to Sydney in 2023. So you could go on the website for more information. And to everyone who joined us today, we hope you gained some insights today. Thank you for participating. As we close the session, we appreciate your feedback, so please fill out a survey after the webinar. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Blair and Jeremy for presenting and taking your time today to speak. Great,
1: thank you. Thank you, thank you
0: very much. You. Goodbye and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.